to be seated. Good evening to you. The book of Psalms, Psalm 78 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Psalms. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. We like everybody to have a Bible, want everyone to have one, and it really is helpful to in our learning not only to hear the Word of God, but to read it and hear at the same time have that deeper effect upon our lives. And so uh, avail yourself of that. And please, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. And Psalm 78 is a very interesting one. It's a, it is the a second longest of all of the 150 psalms, uh, the longest psalm by far, of course, is Psalm 119. And Psalm 78 is a review of Israel's history. And it's a review of Israel's history uh, by Asaph for the purpose of imparting truth specifically to the next generation. God is very concerned, always concerned, about the next generation. The old saying is, is that the church is always just one generation away from extinction. And sometimes you say that, and uh, I'm liable to get a letter from someone saying, you know, that that's a foolish statement to make, and all because God will not allow his body to go extinct or be without a witness. But we understand the truth of that, that there is the realization that one generation passes, it's followed by another generation, the importance of the next generation taking their place just as uh, those of us who are a little bit older took our place when it was that time because another generation was perhaps moving on and graduating into heaven. So God is always thinking about that next generation and preparing them for um, that kind of position of influence and kind of dominance within the body uh, of Christ. And so, uh, and, and one of the best ways that the Lord has of preparing the next generation is to remind them uh, of their history. And history is willing to teach us, uh, even God's people is willing to teach us if we're willing uh, to learn from that history. And so, uh, he lays this history out, and he he lays this history out for the younger generation so that the younger generation doesn't have to relearn the hard way from the mistakes of the earlier generations. And of course, the famous uh, saying by Hegel, the one thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And there's, of course, a lot of truth to that. You watch, if you're a student of history at all, not many people are, uh, you know, proportionately, but to study history is to realize that the same mistakes are made over and over and over again, almost as if the mistakes had never been made in the first place and there was nothing to learn from them. It's like every generation thinks somehow we're different from the previous generation and somehow it, it, it's all new and the fact of the matter is there's nothing new under the sun. It keeps repeating itself so often. And then God looks at individual human lives and he sees, I mean, there, there are not that many histories of individual human lives, but he sees the same mistakes being repeated over and over and over again, not only among those that don't know the Lord, but among God's people, and as if people hadn't already tried these kind of boneheaded things and it hadn't ended in a crash and burn, and then now we're going to try the same thing and we're going to expect a different result. And, uh, and there isn't a, a, a different result. Sometimes you'll hear people speak about being graduates of the School of Hard Knocks, uh, we understand what they're saying. They got their smarts from the street and, and that kind of thing. I think the School of Hard Knocks is really a little bit overrated uh, simply because so many people become a casualty there and they never graduate. They lose something of their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength, and perhaps so significantly while in that school that they end up becoming a casualty before they ever graduate from the school. And so often those that graduate from that school end up uh, with a life of uh, really deep, deep regret. And so the best way to learn is to learn from the mistakes 
of other people. Now, let's just stop tonight for a moment. You just think in your life. What lesson have you learned? Big lesson in life. Shapes your thinking. It shapes shapes your doing. What lesson have you learned in your life from the mistake or mistakes that you have watched others make? Could be a parent. Could be an uncle. Could be a relative. Could be a friend. Could be a business partner. Could be a, a teacher. Could be... A fellow student. And sometimes we can sit and say, well, I haven't learned from the mistakes of anyone. And then you look at our life and say, how many, how much are we learning by making the same mistakes? And we don't want to really look that closely at it. We need to learn from the mistakes that other people make and so that we don't have to learn them firsthand. And a person that can look and say, I can tell you one, two, three things that I've learned from watching somebody else make a great mistake and then having that lesson really be burned deeply into my life, that's wisdom. It's a very wise person that learns in that way and has their mind and their eyes and their hearts open uh, to learning uh, in that way. And we need to, as God's people, we need to learn from other people's mistakes as much as anybody else. And so Asaph gives us this review of Israel's history uh, for the benefit of that next generation. I was uh, out and about last week, and I saw a bumper sticker on a car, and it said, teaching is everywhere. I think I know what they mean by that, and I, and I agree with the bumper sticker. Teaching is everywhere. Everything in life is teaching something. At its core, every single thing in life is teaching One of two things, talking about the deep things of life. Everything in life is teaching one of two things. It is either teaching the blessings of obeying God's commandments and His Word, or it is teaching the, how shall we say, lack of blessedness, in the life that is lived contrary or in disobedience to God's Word and to His commandments. In the big picture, the meaningful picture of life, all of life teaches those two things. And you can look at it. It's repeated over and over again. Pick up any newspaper, read through it, go online, look at any news site, Anywhere you want to go, it's all teaching the same thing. It is blessed to walk and obey with God and obey God, and it is a curse to disobey and walk in rebellion to God. And so God is making this lesson, driving home this lesson to the next generation, but it's good for any generation. He said, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. And so he said, I want to speak to this next generation of God's power, of His wisdom, of the wonderful things that He is capable of and that He wants to do. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and may not be like their fathers who were a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that uh, did not set its heart aright and whose, and whose spirit was not faithful to 
God. And so he lays out the blessings associated with obeying and then the price that is paid for disobedience. This is what he's wanting to lay out in this history. I do like this verse 8. One of the things that he wanted to teach, that they may not be like their fathers, especially when their fathers have been a stubborn and a rebellious generation. None of us needs to be like our father or our parents or our fathers. Sin has become, since we as a culture have begun to move very, very strongly away from God in the 1960s. And you think about 1960s, okay, oh, 50 years, sounds like ancient history. But it has accelerated And the more that it is accelerated, the more casualties there are of sin, the more bondage to sin that is around us. And you find more and more people in a younger generation being raised now where generationally they look at a sin or a couple, two or three sins that dominate their parents or dominate their family. And people apart from God are losing hope that they can break free from that. The beautiful thing is, is that when a person is born again by giving our life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and brings a whole new nature, brings the nature of God inside of us. So that no matter what the gene pool is, and it's a messy old gene pool, everywhere it's a messy old gene pool. No matter how strong the tendencies of the gene pool, God's pull towards righteousness and to conform us into the image of Christ is stronger still. And I think it's very important for the younger generation to realize we do not have to repeat the sins of our parents. If our parents have been drunks, we don't have to follow that. Drug addicts, gang members, liars, thieves, cheats. These things, we do, we do not have to say, well, he's a chip off the old block. Even if we notice and see the tendencies in our own lives to go in a certain direction that we see in our parents, the gene pool right in front of us, there is a power and another path to take. We don't have to follow them down that path. There is a different way. We do not have to follow our parents or our fathers down a path of rebellion against God. And the only reason that we don't have to is because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that allows us to walk in obedience to a new nature that God brings into our lives. And that's important to hear. And that's important and will be more and more and more important to a younger generation that is exposed more and more to more and more at an earlier and earlier ages to the most strongest bondages of the flesh. And each generation a little bit worse to realize I can be the person that God wants me to be. I do not have to follow in my parents' stubbornness or in their rebellion. And then he begins in verse 9, formally laying out their history. He said, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown to them. And so there is the listing of Ephraim's failures. Ephraim was the largest tribe of Israel in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ephraim, the whole track record of that tribe was one of failure. Uh, over and over again, they forfeited the blessings of that God desired to give to them and and the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, again, kind of representing all of them, had this long history of idolatry and rebellion against God. And so that was part of their history, and they paid a price for it. He then moves on in verse 12 to speak about their exodus out of Egypt and the journey through the wilderness. Marvelous things he, that is, God did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the, fi- in the field of Zoan. He, divi- he divided the sea and caused them to pass through, the passing uh, through of the, the Red Sea and the exodus from Egypt. He made the waters stand up like a heap 
on either side. That would have been something to walk through <laughs> that Red Sea, the water up on a heap. This would be like going to the Monterey Aquarium where you, or the San Francisco Aquarium where they got the glass wall, but there's no glass. You're just walking through there. Now, this is an interesting passage because you get this uh, kind of uh, speculations that people have about the fact that the children of Israel really didn't cross the Red Sea miraculously, but it was the Reed Sea, which is about 18 inches deep and all. Well, I doubt the psalmist would uh, speak of making, taking the waters and standing them up in a heap if it was just 18 inches of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the Reed Sea. There's also the problem of having the whole army of Pharaoh and all of the horses drowning in 18 inches of water. So you got a miracle either way you want to look at it. I'm pretty straightforward, and I'll take the Red Sea version uh, of that. And so in the daytime also he led them with a cloud and at night with a light of the fire. So through the wilderness journeys, that pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them drink in abundance like depths. And, of course, we remember the history of they would be thirsty. God would have Moses smite the rock and the water would come uh, forth and supply their need. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused rivers to run down uh, waters to run down like rivers. And so God is just blessing them. I mean, God gave them every reason to obey them, Him and to follow Him. But they sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. So here God gives them this tremendous prosperity, and then they rebel against all of God's blessings. Prosperity among God's people, one of the hardest things to handle in a spiritual way. There's something about as we obey God's Word, we are prospered. I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have in the bank or you don't have in the bank. When we obey God, we are prospered. It is a prosperous way to live on lots and lots of different levels. And when God prospers us, then, some, then what happens is we begin to develop some margins in our life, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, or whether mental stability, or whatever it might be. And then we start to get a little bit proud, and we begin to think that this is all because of us. And then pretty soon we think we're smarter than God, and we start to make our own decisions and rebel against them. And then we, we end up losing the prosperity that God has given to us because He's got to put us in the doghouse and He's got to discipline us. We've watched that in our own nation occur again in this last 50 years. God prospered this nation so abundantly, still doing it in His grace, but so blessed. And then here we hit a point where look at all of this and the great nation that it is and the machinery, the industrial juggernaut that it is, the agriculture and people on the moon and all of this kind of stuff. And then pretty soon we're smarter than God. And so we start to flip his, his morality on its head, his definitions of right and wrong on its head. And then you turn around in just one generation, just one lifestyle. You can end up $19 trillion in debt. <laughs> you can end up with states bankrupt. You can end up, you can end up with, with school systems that are just in, desperately in need of a revolution to become modern with the times, let alone their fight against God, which is a hopeless fight. And of winning that battle. But everywhere you see it, that arrogance, that pride, then the prosperity, then we think we're smarter than God, and then the humbling is going to come. And so this was, it's, it's been again history over and over and over the same thing. They sinned even more against Him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, and they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. And yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? And behold, God struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he supply meat for his people? And so we get a little insight into that wilderness journey from the time of leaving Egypt to coming to the promised land. 
God gave them water, and when he gave them water, then they wanted food. So he gave them manna, and then uh, upon giving them manna, pretty soon they didn't want any manna. They want meat, you know. So they weren't satisfied with anything that God was doing, uh, yielding to their own cravings, and so God would end up giving them quail, as we're going to see in just a moment. But um, for some of them it was their last meal, so... Uh, They hardly had time to enjoy it. And therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. And so a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and he opened the doors of heaven, rained down manna on them to eat and uh, given them of the bread of heaven. uh, Men ate angels' food. So that's what... The manna was. A little bit like angel food cake. I mean, I said a little bit. That's a qualifying statement. I've lost some of you for the rest of the sermon. Angel food cake. Wow. What kind of a topping? Like a cherry topping with a little glaze and drizzle on the thing. But it was a very sweet little thing. For those of us who have a little bit of a sweet tooth, we like that. It was a, but a very nutritious. Obviously, I could live 40 years on it. So he sent them food to the full in the form of manna. And then he caused, because of their cravings, an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he brought in the south wind. And he also rained meat on them like dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the sea. So many he brought in this quail, blew them in, and uh, he let them fall in the midst of the camp and all around their dwellings. And you remember that they uh, took sticks and they went out and they, the quail were right down low enough that they could hit them and knock them down. And, and, and uh, the, the Bible says it's kind of like playing baseball. They're just whacking them and hitting them and everything. And the Bible says that those that gathered the least of the quail gathered ten homers. That's as good as I'll be tonight on that on a joke. That's in honor of the Giants for some of you. But, but they, they wanted that craving that food, knocking it down and, and all. And so he let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwellings. And so they ate and they were filled. And so he, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their cravings, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Again, an important lesson to be learned. God's wisdom, His will, His provision for our life. Is, he's smarter in all of that uh, than we are. And if we come to God and say, I'm not going to follow you unless you give me quail or unless you give me, you fill in the blank for whatever the temptation is for your life. And the writer's saying, don't do that. God knows how to provide uh, for us, and, and we don't want to dishonor him in that. In spite of all of this, God's provision, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works, and therefore their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. When he slew them, they sought him, and they returned, and they sought earnestly for God. And then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. They lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful uh, in his covenant. But being full of compassion, he forgave their iniquity, did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. So this is speaking of the period of the judges where the children of Israel would engage in idolatry and sin, come into bondage to uh, the consequences of their sin, cry out to God for deliverance from their enemies as God would allow them to be taken captive by a neighboring country, uh, uh, country or nation. And then they would cry out when the bondage became so great, the consequences of sin, cry out to God for a deliverer. God would raise up a deliverer, deliver them out. Then for some period of time, they would then worship the Lord. He would then prosper them once again. And then they would go into idolatry again, the perils of prosperity sometimes. And then the whole cycle would be repeated. It's interesting, though, to, to notice in this, sometimes we read of God's deeds 
dealings with them, and he's very, very firm, but to realize that he did not stir up all his wrath in that. He was being gracious to them even when he judged them. He judged them in order to bring repentance in their heart, bring them back uh, to him, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. And so God's compassion upon them even in that place. And then in verse 40, he speaks of their exodus specifically, their deliverance from Egypt, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and they grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and they limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers, speaking of Egypt, into blood, and their streams they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn of Egypt, the first of their strength, and the tents of Ham. So speaking of the judgment that God brought upon the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and all to gain the release of his uh, children from their bondage there. And then in verse 52, it starts to talk about their journey from Egypt to the promised land, the border of the promised land. And he gave, he made his own people go forth like sheep. And he guided them in the wilderness like a flock And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. Verse 55 speaks of the conquest of the land under Joshua. Very concise. One verse encapsulates the entire conquest in this history that he gives. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them by allotted them an inheritance by survey and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. And they were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their idolatry or their carved images. And when God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory, speaking of his people, into the enemy's hand. And he also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Uh, Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. So once again, he's communicating there's no future in sin. It always ends in a crash and burn, whether an individual or God's people as a whole or as a nation. And then verse 65, speaking of God's grace, then the Lord awoke as from sleep and a mighty man who shouts because of wine, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. Uh, when the children of Israel were taken into bondage by the Assyrians and then ultimately by the Babylonians, uh, they went too far in their harsh treatment of the Jews, and ultimately God brought his judgment upon them. We'll speak about that a little bit later in another psalm. And moreover, he rejected the tent uh, of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, 
but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And so here he ends this history on a happy note, God's choosing uh, of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem for the location for the tabernacle, ultimately for the temple, David being chosen as a, a godly king. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had uh, young, he, that he had, let's try that again. From following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. And so he, that is David, shepherded them according to the integrity or the fullness or the wholeheartedness of his heart, and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. And so here we have the psalmist bringing out really the value of a sanctified memory. And so you've got this long psalm, and you say, well, is it long just to be long? Nothing is long just to be long. God doesn't talk just to talk. And so what we have here in the psalm, the length of the psalm is intended to help drive home the point of what we have in the psalm is a long warning against disobedience and a long encouragement toward obedience. And that's always a necessary thing in the history of even God's people. Beautiful psalm, Psalm 78. Now in Psalm 79 speaks to us of where hope can be found in a season of God's chastening or His discipline in our life. And so all of us find ourselves in the doghouse with God sooner or later. The Bible says that He, Hebrews chapter 12, that He disciplines all of us as His children. And sometimes, you know, people are younger when you're a kid. You just think, I can't wait till I become an adult and then I won't have to be disciplined. Oh, life will discipline us all the way. Um, employers will discipline. Uh, law enforcement will discipline. Prisons will discipline. Nobody escapes discipline. But a child of God is an adult. I mean, I feel like I'm uh, uh, eight years old still with the Lord in terms of the fact that He is very engaged in my life. <laughs> I feel like I'm still in Mrs. Borders' class at Irene M. Snow School in sixth grade. I mean, you, you couldn't get away with anything related to Mrs., Mrs. Borders and Mr. Hample, my fifth grade teacher. Oh, and Mrs. Jacobson, my fourth grade teacher. She was harder than all of them. And, and, uh, and for us, for me as a child of God, the Lord really does. He keeps me on a short leash, and I like that. So He's always talking to me, always doing, you know, in, in our lives. And so there are those times where we fall short, and we're kind of in the doghouse. We know God is disciplining us, and so what in the world do we do? What's our hope at a time like that? Lord, I failed you there. Lord, I fell short there in that situation. And the psalmist is going to show us that the hope is found in simply confessing our sin to the Lord, humbling ourselves to do that, and then repenting of that sin. And so it sometimes he looks at it and says, well, that's such an obvious lesson. But, you know, nothing's that obvious, <laughs> apparently, from God's perspective. Say, what you think is obvious isn't that obvious, he says, when you look at every single human being, even every Christian, as I look at them. So an important psalm. Uh, Psalm 79. The context of it is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And uh, Psalm 74, we remember the, 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 the described the physical destruction of the temple uh, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. And again, God used them because he was disciplining his people because of their rebellion and their wickedness. Psalm 79 has as its focus not so much the temple but the ravaging of God's people as a result of, 
of that Babylonian conquest. I think uh, for some of you it might be very interesting to realize that Psalm 79 is recited at the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, uh, every Friday evening in Jerusalem. And so this is one of the psalms when you see them bobbing there, you see them reading there at that western wall, or you see pictures of it. Psalm 79 is one of the psalms that they're reading. And, and the, the, the fuller account of the price that God's people paid for their sin and as a, as a result of the discipline that came by the Babylonians, the fullest description of that is Jeremiah's book, Uh, lamentations, but this takes us pretty close to it. He said, "Uh, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. Asaph is a righteous man. He's a patriot. A godly man in Israel at that time. And when he sees these Babylonians invade not just Jerusalem, but that God allows them to go all the way into the temple and the Holy of Holies and destroy it, his mind just fries. He doesn't, he doesn't know how. He, he doesn't know. He, he looks at it and says, how could our sin be so great that you would allow them to do that to us. Yeah, we're bad, but they're even worse than we are. So he's confused. It's the same confusion of the prophet Habakkuk. When God spoke to Habakkuk of the fact that God was going to judge Israel for their sin by using the, these pagan nations to do it, and Habakkuk goes, in essence, cries out to God and says the same thing. We're bad. I know that. I see that. But how can you judge a more righteous people as bad as we are but by using an even more unrighteous people? And the answer is, is that judgment begins in the house of God. We're held to a different standard than the pagans are, than the world is. They're not born again. They don't have the law written upon their hearts. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so... He's confused by all of it. And then he describes uh, Jerusalem in the destruction. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. So all of us have been seeing the images of of the Hurricane Sandy in uh, New Jersey and in New York City and how everything's just leveled and it's just like shock and awe. People just, what in the world? And he's feeling that same thing related to the destruction uh, of Jerusalem. The dead bodies, here he moves to talking about the people. The dead bodies of your servants, they've given as food for the birds of heaven, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there's no one to bury them. There were so many dead bodies heaped around following the conquest of, ba- of Jerusalem by Babylon, that there weren't enough able-bodied people left to bury the dead or even shoo away the animals that came in, whether bird or whatever, to then uh, pick away at the dead bodies. And then he speaks of the reproach, the humiliation of all of this, not just the physical damage uh, that had been done and the physical Consequences. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those around us. God, we, we claimed to represent you. We claimed that you were the true and the living God, etc., etc., and all. And now they mock us and they mock you as our God. It would have been better for the children of Israel to have a concern for God's reputation far earlier than this. If they would have had a concern for God's reputation long before God was forced to discipline them in this way, then he would have never needed to discipline them in that way. So better late than never, but it was a little bit late here for the nation, though Asaph is a righteous man and he's feeling it. He cries out, 
to, to the Lord as he just cries to the Lord for the Lord to intervene on in all of this and show grace to God's people and judge these enemies. How long, Lord? Again, he's confused at, at what God is doing. How could you let this happen to us and, and do it with people that are worse than us? How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember uh, former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to us. And so when you're in that kind of a place... Our only hope is in the grace of God and the mercy of God that we've already sung about here tonight. And so he's on the right track. Lord, we pray that you judge these that have done this to us and, and pray that you would uh, remember your tender mercies and bring them to us. And, 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 and he says, for we have been brought very Low. And so in all of this, there's a confession. When he, when he cries out and he asks God for mercy, that's a confession that we have done wrong. He doesn't ask for justice. We have done wrong. It's confession of sin. And then here is the humility, and we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. So a cry for God uh, to show mercy to them on the basis of his own nature, not on the basis of whether they deserved it. Or not. Let the groanings of the prisoner come before you. So many of them have been taken off as prisoners, and all they can do is groan and, and groan to God and for God to recognize it as a prayer. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with, with which they have reproached you. That's an interesting thing that God did bring the Babylonians in as an instrument of his judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah to take them into bondage. That was his doing. But God never intended the Babylonians to be as savage as they were in their conquest of the Jews. And then when the Babylonians defeated the Jews, then all of the surrounding nations that hated the Jews, nothing new under the sun, they saw it as an opportunity to come into the land and loot and bring further heartache and destruction to the Jews, and so they did that. And so God ultimately does answer the prayer of Asaph in here. Later on in the book of Isaiah, he rebukes Babylon, he rebukes the surrounding nations and essentially says to them, I intended to use you as an instrument of discipline, but you went way beyond. Your fleshly hatred entered in, went way beyond what I intended, and now I'm going to judge you for that. If God ever uses us as an instrument of chastisement or discipline in another person's life, and if you ever find that you enjoy that, don't do it anymore. Because you're going to go too far and you're going to overstep and then you're going to find yourself in a bigger doghouse than the person that you were uh, trying to minister to in that. God really, uh, when, when a person's involved in that kind of a situation, need to be very careful, very gracious, very directed by the Lord. And then he closes the psalm with a confidence in God's uh, mercy and he says, for we... Your people and sheep of your pasture will give you thanks forever. In other words, we'll be eternally grateful. We will show forth your praise to all generations. And so he has a confidence that God does have the grace for them and that if God does show the grace, that he knows that they will be uh, eternally grateful for that grace. And, of course, there was that uh, characteristic among the children of Israel when they returned from uh, the Babylonian 
uh, captivity. And so uh, this confession of sin, repentance of sin, the, the, uh, psalmist, the psalm is intended to make us realize that we can be confident with that, confident that with that confession of sin and with that repentance, God will be merciful to us. It may mean a season of discipline. It may mean a Babylonian captivity in proportion to whatever God is dealing with in our lives, but there'll be grace even for that, and there's always a future and a hope related to our lives. Psalm 80 is a cry uh, for restoration. And so the psalmist writes, Asaph, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength. We would say flex your muscles and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. And so here they are. They're in a difficult situation. The psalmist is crying out for the Lord to come and rescue and uh, restore them. And then he says, O Lord God of hosts, how long? So anytime we're again in the doghouse, one of our questions is, how long is this going to be? And so how long, O Lord, uh, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? Well, they've done something here uh, because God is not only angry with their sin, but He's angry uh, with their prayers. Their prayers are an offense to Him. And so, I mean, that's, that's upsetting God a lot. So it probably means they're engaged in their idolatry. They're bearing the consequences again, maybe the Babylonian issue again. And God is saying that during that season of time, they were lifting up these prayers to him, but they were just hypocrisy. They were living one kind of life in one environment, religious environments, completely different other kind of life in their private life, and yet lifting these prayers up from that inconsistency uh, in their life. And it was uh, uh, certainly less than a blessing to the Lord. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. And so continue to plea for that restoration in God's favor. You have brought a vine out of Egypt and you have cast out the nations and planted it. So again, he reviews Israel's history here, uh, how they were uh, the redemption birth is a nation out of Egypt. God planted them as a, a nation and prospered them there in the promised land. You prepared room for it, for this people, for this nation to come into existence. You caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. So the picture is of Israel flourishing in the promised land like a great tree. Again, here's this period of prosperity that, that they enjoyed, and, and yet they couldn't handle that prosperity and, and headed into sin, and the judgment was required. So he said, why have you broken down her hedges, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit. Lord, why have you left us uh, defenseless in all of this? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. And then here is a, a prayer uh, that goes out further, really a prayer for the Messiah. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. 
upon the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a title that Jesus gave himself to Himself continually in the Gospels. Jesus, of course, is the man at uh, the Father's right hand. Upon the Son of Man uh, whom you have made strong for yourself. And so this kind of prophetic element in the psalm that uh, related to uh, the children of Israel. As wonderful as the restoration back into the land was following the Babylonian captivity, for those who were willing to return, uh, Israel will only know, the Jews will only know the fullness of their prosperity uh, when the day comes that they acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. And uh, that won't happen easy. Uh, it'll take a great tribulation for that to happen. That's how hard the heart is toward Him as the Messiah, not on the part of all, but certainly on the part of most. He said, Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall uh, be saved. And so this cry for restoration and, uh, and, and uh, that is made uh, to the Lord. Psalm 80 uh, teaches us that the way of the transgressor is hard, very clearly teaches that, but it also teaches, that, again, that if we respond to God's chastening with a confession of our sin, repentance, humility and all, that uh, we can be confident that God will be gracious to us once again and He will restore us. And that's an important lesson to have put in our hearts. Because again, I mean, it doesn't, we don't have to sin as grievously and as habitually and as long as the children of Israel did in order to be on the wrong side of God and to realize, Lord, I've lost intimacy in my relationship with you. I know, some, I know that that thing that I did has cost me in, in, a, in a way, in the relationship, it's a big deal to me. And how can that be restored? There's a funny thing. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we can't have that relationship disturbed. It, you can look at it, and I'm a weaker man now in many respects than I have ever been in my whole life. Because... I look at the world, I look at wickedness, I look at temptations, and I look at going in the direction or attempting to live even in a partial way the life that I once lived, and I realize I wouldn't be able to handle that. I wouldn't be able to survive that. So why in the world would God make you weaker now than, you know, than uh, when you were there? Because it's an important defense inside of us from ever thinking we can go back to that and be successful. It's a good thing when our relationship comes to mean so much to us and we become so dependent upon the Lord that when we look at a temptation that's being offered to us out there, we look at it and say, I can't even say yes to that because I'd never survive it because I've become so dependent upon God's grace and this relationship that I have with Him. But when that gets disturbed, sometimes even in a way that other people would feel as like a minor thing and no big deal, but it's a big deal to us. We need to know there's hope for restoration. And the hope for restoration is confessing our sin to the Lord, repenting of that sin, and, and committing to doing it a different way the next time, and then moving forward in our, our uh, relationship uh, with him, God would later speak of His grace uh, into their situation, a situation that was otherwise uh, hopeless through Jeremiah, and it is is kind of esteemed or upset as God was with the children of Israel. They were still His children. We're still His children. He's still very committed to us. Doesn't run us out of the family, but He can make you think about running away. <laughs> When he puts you in the room after a good spanking and then restricts you on all fronts, I'll tell you, here I am. I'm 57 years old, and I'm back in Mr. Hample's class. Like I said, 
This is what God spoke to these same people, Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30, verse 17. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, no one seeks her. Later in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 6, God said, Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return. And I will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities which, by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And then it shall be to me a name of joy, of praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I prepare for it. God was upset, but all of this was in his heart as well. And their repentance and confession of sin allowed God to ultimately express it in the way that he uh, wanted to. It's a New Testament truth as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Now, no Christian seems to be, uh, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, there is always an afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And one of the greatest pictures and statements in all of the Bible concerning the heart of God toward us, even in a backslidden, rebellious state, is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You think about that one. The boy wanted all of his inheritance from his dad, but he didn't want to wait till his dad died. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want my money now. That's offensive in this culture, and hardly anything's offensive in this culture. In a Middle Eastern, ancient, patriarchal culture, it'd be like, why don't you cut your father's throat by saying something like that to him. The father gave him the wealth. And he went out and he bought fields and became, bought factories and became a great businessman. No, he didn't have anything that lofty in mind. He went out and spent it on a bunch of nonsense and harlots and partying and all of that. And then one day comes to his senses. Everybody has their path to settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. I look at that. I watch that in people's lives. I watch it in my own family. And I can't do it for them. I can't make that happen. I know I had my own path. I could have come to the Lord. I could have settled the issue of His lordship in my life years before I did. But I had the path that God knew that will settle the issue for you. And He knows how to do that in people's lives. And so he finally comes to his senses, and then he longs for just to be able to eat the slop that he used to feed to the pigs when he lived at his father's house. He never had a dream that his father would ever allow him back into the house. just wants to be a servant, feed the pigs, and eat what was fed to the livestock. That's how hungry he was in his, in his backslidden state. So he works out his speech and what he's going to say to dad. He's determined that he's going to return to dad. Okay, I'm not worthy to be, you know, one of your servants and et cetera, et cetera. He's got the whole thing worked out. And he begins to return home. His father sees him from a distance and begins to run to his son that's returning to him. It's the only picture that we have God running or being in a hurry in the whole Bible from that parable of Jesus. And he runs to that son that is returning. 
and he orders a celebration to be uh, begun, the fatted calf to be killed, and the party, put a robe on him, the ring, all of those things, and the restoration of him back. My son was lost, and now he's alive. He's returned to me. And behind all of the things that we may have to deal with, is God in His wisdom chastens us in a way so that we don't return so casually to sin. That behind everything is the heart of God toward each and every one of us. And repentance allows Him to express that heart to us. And there might be some of us here tonight where we sit and people look at us just like anybody else in the room. We look like we're walking with, the God, with God 100% on fire. Okay, whoa, okay, who? Mm. And we know in our own heart we're backslidden in our heart. We know there was another time in our life where our relationship with God was closer, more intimate, where we were more obedient to His Word where we were more obedient to His calling upon our lives, whatever the price required to be obedient. And that's a backslidden state. And all of that can be corrected tonight. We're just confessing that sin to God, repenting of my sin, and then being confident that though God may discipline me for a while, He will work it together for my good and His good in and through my life and restore me and to bless me. It's a wonderful, needed psalm that speaks again that the way of the transgressor is hard. That point needs to be made. But there's tremendous hope in the grace of God contained in the close of this psalm. God knows that we need it as His people to have the confidence in His grace and in His mercy between where we are tonight and the day that we one day stand on that glassy sea in heaven itself. Let's stand together and we'll pray.